0: Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. All right, we're back again for the kickoff to our new season of Critical Value, and we're super excited about the podcast we have in the hopper for the coming year. We are going to be covering topics like immigration, criminal justice reform, jobs and employment, and much more. Our request to you, you smart, incredibly good-looking listener, is to subscribe to the podcast on whatever app you're listening to now, rate the show on iTunes, and spread the word far and wide to let others know about this podcast. Thank you so much. The show today is gonna be a little different than usual. For this episode, we're sharing a conversation that I had recently at an event to celebrate the relaunch of critical value. In DC, I spoke with Dr. Vivian Ming, a neuroscientist who runs her own think tank in Berkeley, California, that works on artificial intelligence and its application and implications for the future. As you know, AI is becoming more and more prevalent in our daily lives, from facial recognition and public security to resume reviews and hiring. Our conversation touches upon some of the opportunities and challenges that AI may present to our society in the coming years. And I'm sorry I can't offer you any of the snacks we had at the function, but I'm happy you'll be able to listen in to the conversation. Welcome, everybody. This is the launch party, launch event for Season 2 of Critical Value. And I'm sure some of you are like, I didn't know there was a Season 1 of Critical Value, <laughs> but it's true. This is a launch event for Season 2. Instead of having Dr. Ming do her background, I'm going to do like a quick, like rapid fire, and you'll be amazed at all the things that she's done, and this is like not even a tenth of it. Dr. Ming, her, her title, her uh, background is in theoretical neuroscience, already, very awesome, right? Already very exciting. She's a co-founder of Socos Labs, an independent think tank using mad science to explore the future of human potential. She's worked as a CIA consultant on facial recognition technology. She's helped develop an app that I downloaded for parents to track their kids' development. And she's probably most well-known as being a real pioneer in thinking about the use and application of new technologies such as artificial intelligence. So number one, she makes me feel like I should be more productive in my own life. That's part of it. But she has a remarkable and really interesting perspective on the application of these technologies and thinking about it both in business sector, social sector, and in government. Since you're with us here in D.C., this is not necessarily a place, this is not known as like the innovative hub that Silicon Valley is, right? Like if the watchword there is disruption, the watchword here is probably inertia, right? It's not quite the same. But we want to talk today about bridging the gap a little bit and thinking about what that what the intersection can look like of artificial intelligence and new technologies and government.
1: You know, uh, several years ago, I was the chief scientist of one of the first companies ever doing AI and hiring. And at the time, I started to play around. I read this paper that a group of researchers at Facebook put out saying that as they got more information about you, they could predict first better than a stranger, then better than friends, then better than you your big five personality characteristics hmm. just based off the data they could collect off Facebook. And I thought, well, that's scary. Uh, I don't think I want Mark Zuckerberg to know these things about me. But the other thing I thought was, I wonder if I could do that with company cultures. Hmm. Uh, if I could collect all this data. I had a database of 122 million people pulled from professionals, uh, largely in the English language uh, business world. And so I built this thing. And in the end we were able to do, that. the models were called generative models. So you could actually generate things out of them. So what if you could generate the bio section of a LinkedIn profile? So we did that, and uh, you've got to kind of fill in the blanks, so I'm going to do it for you here in a caricature of what these came out as. But let's say we generate the bio section of a DC engineer. Hmm. Uh, our business was very much about software developers. I am a wonderful developer. If you give me a set of instructions, I will execute on it and return a beautiful product. All right, now we generate the biosection of a Silicon Valley engineer. You lucky bastard. Because you have attracted my attention, I will solve your problems for you. Uh, Now, it's no comment about which of them is actually better, but the cultures are distinctly different. You can pull it out. If you, you know, if you import someone out of Silicon Valley here as, say, you know, Code for America and others did, I think they were pretty honest in saying it's the worst job you'll ever have. You will leave after a month and please come do it anyways, because these are genuine cultural differences. And it doesn't, again, it doesn't magically make one of them the right way to solve problems or another. But I will say, yes, uh, what sociologists would call a loose versus a tight culture San Francisco is loose. D.C. is tight. Loose cultures correlate very strongly with innovation. And tight cultures are better for, you know, clamping down on issues of risk management. So there isn't a right answer to this. Mm -hmm. But I just loved how much of an asshole the San Francisco engineer came across in the model. (laughs) That was AI, which
0: makes it true. Amazing. Let's, I wanted to start out just with a leveling question of, like, even when we're talking about this idea of artificial intelligence, just what's a quick sort of working definition so we're all on the same page? A traditional form of definition
1: of artificial intelligence would be any autonomous system that can make a decision under uncertainty. What chess move should I make next? Uh, how fast should I be going as this car makes a left turn? Should I bring this uh, job candidate from a resume in for an interview? There's not a right answer to any of those questions. If there was, we'd be in a different field of computer science. Instead, you have to balance all the possibilities of the future and make a decision under uncertainty. But I think even more practically, from a policy or a business standpoint, what we're talking about increasingly are artificial systems that can make expert human-like judgments cheaper faster, and increasingly, in some domains, better than a human can make them. Now think about the economic and policy implications of that. They're big, they're huge, but they can only do it in domains that we already understand. This is a difficult space to speak in, but uh, generally speaking, what AI doesn't do is explore the unknown. It is fundamentally about looking at massive reams of data and learning the patterns that exist in it. You go outside that historical data... And now you're in a completely new space and it doesn't know what
0: to do. So in the context of government, I mean, that description of taking complex inputs and trying to improve the decision-making, that that describes a lot of policy decisions or policy-making that might take place within government. So are there places then that you see this application being particularly relevant within the context of government and policy? We're looking at entrepreneurialism, particularly among underrepresented
1: populations. And we're using similar sorts of big data uh, techniques and economic modeling. So we've got a whole bunch of companies to donate data to us, and we're running all these analyses. Who gets funding? How many, literally, how many jobs do they create? How much IP, patents, scientific papers, movies, whatever it is that they spin out. So we have all of this data And what would be possible for this is to build a shaming exercise. You can imagine what cities might not look great. Turns out D.C. does not look great in our analysis. If you look at straight white men versus everybody else in terms of funding and all these other things, there is a huge gap here. Atlanta is, amongst big cities, the far and away the best performer, generically across all the populations we're looking at. So I'm skipping over a lot of specifics to get at this, one of the things we're doing is mining through all the policy data we can get. So if we're looking at the top 80 metros in the United States in terms of high growth entrepreneurship, and we're literally measuring job creation as mediated by high growth entrepreneurs who just happen to be female, black, gay and lesbian refugee, what do we see in terms of the causal relationship between those policies and job creation? So not like we should run this policy because it's the right thing to do for gay people. We should run these policies because it creates jobs. just Mm. happens to do it Mm. through gay entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. So again, early stages with Mm -hmm. this work, uh, and even five years ago, it would have seemed like how would you be able to pull that policy data? I mean, uh, the government's idea of making data available is if you go halfway down this website, there's a drop menu with PDFs that are photographs. But it turns out with modern deep neural networks, you can actually do this Mm -hmm. kind of work. You can scrape things out of images. So even if the text is not represented, you can pull it out as though a person was looking at it. That's a perfect example of a brief expert human judgment that an AI can do at least as well and sometimes better than a human. So if you start to rethink these projects, what if we literally Measure, and then using some of these techniques I alluded to before, computational linguistic embedding. So even though the wording of this policy isn't the same, we can actually see that it's a really, it's the same kind of policy. We can put it in the context of the city that it's embedded in and say, wow, it turns out Indianapolis, you aren't doing such a great job right now but we're going to build a counterfactual model that says, you know, if you make these three policy changes, here is the predicted change Mm. in job creation through high-growth entrepreneurs in your city. They just happen to be high-growth entrepreneurs that are not traditional entrepreneurs.
0: So marrying some of those insights with policy prescription, too, about like what are some of the options to do that. Exactly. And I'm I'm in no way saying that AI should be making these
1: decisions, that uh, it it doesn't matter to have policy actions. Potentially point the way. But I think it points the way, and it also really, in many ways, clarifies things because, obviously, our politics get involved in this. Uh, You know, It sure seems like tax policy would have something to do with job creation. Well not for high growth entrepreneurship, it really doesn 't no entrepreneur gives a toss about tax policy because we never pay any taxes like you don 't pay taxes till you start making money and it doesn 't make it doesn 't do any good for a city to lower their tax rate because the only reason an entrepreneur goes to a city is because there 's talent and they need elite talent and talent likes to be in special places so all the cities that do everything wrong in terms of tax policy and regulation, like Boston and San Francisco and New York and DC, are the cities that entrepreneurs go to because you cannot launch a high growth company if you don't have access to that kind of elite talent. So it turns out policies around funding for the arts or parks have a bigger causal relationship to high growth job, job creation by high growth entrepreneurs than policies related to taxes. Mm-hmm. Even though one seems completely
0: unrelated. Yeah. Um, So I want to flip the sides. You you mentioned this idea of like the sort of the tight culture here in DC, which I'm sure some of us can relate to that, Um, and might be in our LinkedIn profile. Who knows? Uh, So, but when you think about that, there is a role for that, right? And that is this sort of like the regulatory role and the um, setting guardrails for around rights and protection of rights and civil rights and. That, that seems to be another place so government may be able to use some of these technologies but also set boundaries for some of the technologies. How do you see that role emerging now? So I do think that there's a role for government in this process.
1: In this particular case, I'm not a big fan of legislation around artificial intelligence, but perhaps not for the reason that many groups, I mean, kicking and screaming that is what Silicon Valley, how you're going to drag them into legislation. Not in a million years do any of them want to be legislated until they see that it's you know, written in stone and then they're going to be want wanted to be legislated to death because then it will keep everyone else out of their markets. You know, you just look to the finance industry and you'll see how all this will work out. And it's not like the finance, it's basically the tech industry as well nowadays with data. So it all plays out the same. For me, though, it's just practical. The simple truth is Technology changes so fast nowadays, and it only gets faster, that legislation, uh, mm. I mean, even the formal process of legislation, is slow compared to the rate of change of technology. But you create these systems, and a very e- simple example of which is GDPR is all about data,
0: data regulation. And that
1: seems to make sense, right? Didn't I say modern AI, a lot of data
0: so if you're saying the legislation is going to be too slow and it's not going to be able to keep up with the times in terms of innovations that are going to happen, should we be thinking more about like reg- looking at the outputs of models and the, the sort of the impacts of models in order to? Yeah. Discern... So I think
1: that that leaves us with three okay. big sort of swaths of policy here. One is auditing. Auditing becoming a norm in the financial world was part of simple good governance and board work. You can't have uh, investment if you don't know what's going on in a company. So, you know, for all of its failings, the Gilded Age gave rise to audits, and that was a wonderful thing. It may be a pain in the (laughs) ass, but collectively it's a good. We should have data audits. That's something that I would love for the industry to take on on its own as a standard, but if it won't, we should make them. So there's one thing. Another is strong institutions. Now, this could be government or it could be not. So we could look at the WHO or the CDC or the Fed as different models of the kind of institutions I'm talking about. But institutions that get this stuff and have experts participate. And, of course, they would need some regulatory authority. Could be funding, and I like like a positive stick, uh, which is to say maybe they could help direct funding towards groups That are doing better things. So, government contracts towards groups that are using uh, data in the right way. I mean, data is amazing and it's powerful, but its margins are tiny. So, you know, having things getting steered around by uh, groups that get it, right? This doesn't work if these institutions don't (coughs) love AI, Uh, So I love this idea of having empowered institutions Mm -hmm. and probably a diversity of them. Mm -hmm. NGO and governmental coming in and doing what any good institutional regulatory body should do, which is be an expert that loves its industry, don't get captured, because legislators simply cannot keep up. It is not their job to be experts about AI. And ultimately, my third recommendation is that we need to empower individuals in the use of AI. There's this idea of data trust. It comes out of the UK. It's built on the well-established formalisms of trust, which are legal entities that represent the interests of their members. And the idea is you would contribute your data to a data trust collectively with other groups that share your interest in how data is managed. And then groups like mine could go build a system. So we've worked... In some things with student groups at, uh, at Berkeley and with the ACLU, looking at building AIs to actually help represent people in court cases. So juveniles mm. going to juvenile proceedings, building an AI to represent them uh, to make certain they don't enter the system. So we will build free software and just give it away. All you have to do is have the infrastructure to run it, which is the important ingredient here. And wouldn't it be amazing to know, even though the police can't tell you specifics about your case, to know that they are likely actually pursuing your case, or that if your grandson had some fracas with the police, that they aren't just going to, by default, push him into the system, uh, or any number of these.
0: Exploring some of those places, I, I think, where you could, where we know some of these biases already exist, and thinking about using technologies to help counteract that. I think that would be exciting. As I said, I think we could have gone easily two to three hours. We are at time. So I want to thank Dr. Ming for our conversation. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. As always, we'll close with a few main takeaways. Here are three things you need to know. One, The traditional definition of artificial intelligence is any autonomous system that can make a decision under uncertainty. And AI can be applied in all sectors, private, nonprofit, and government. Two, artificial intelligence allows for computers to analyze more information and data than people can. And the potential for helping governments model and design new policy is exciting. And three, The use of AI can also lead to problematic outcomes and deepen systemic biases. It will take a mix of auditing of private firms, strong governmental institutions and regulation, and the empowerment of individuals to deal with the complexities of AI in the future. So that's our show. Thanks again to Dr. Vivian Ming for joining me on stage for our conversation and the Urban team for making the event such a success, especially Alana Morrow and Ivy Hunter. And please remember our three requests. Subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts, rate the show on iTunes, and spread the word. Thanks as always to the Critical Value team and our sound editor extraordinaire, Riley Byrne from podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off.